0: Hello and welcome to this podcast in my series entitled The Voice of the Mad. I'm Professor Rab Houston of the University of St Andrews and this podcast is the first of four about the case of a poor clerk and a society heiress in 18th century Edinburgh. The testimony that I hope you've had a chance to read on the website is the longest document of all those on which I've based my podcasts. Called in legal terms a declaration, it represents a distillation of no less than five hours of verbal evidence. The person giving the statement, called the declarant, was John Philip, a young man in his early 20s who made a living as a writer or legal clerk in Edinburgh. John had stalked a society heiress called Miss Anne Brodie for several months before launching a violent assault on, on her home in Edinburgh's new town on the 4th of December 1776. She had filled his life for those months as he adored her from afar and then tried to court her in writing. Then in a sudden and violent conclusion he determined to harm her or those close to her and also himself. Now in this podcast and the next three I'm going to fill in the story of what happened to John Philip and to his victim Anne. Using John's testimony as the core but also adding in a rich variety of other evidence that sets it in context and helps us to explain just how terrifying and just how insightful this particular case is into a certain kind of mental disorder. Those accused of serious crimes in the past normally tried to say as little as possible and what they did say was designed to exculpate them. Historians who work on crime normally hear the testimony of the victim or of witnesses other than the alleged perpetrator. In contrast, we don't have to rely on the stunned, fearful and ultimately hostile accounts of others to discover John Philip's story because he gave a long explanation of his actions and intentions to a magistrate the day after his arrest. Calm, measured and almost without prevarication, it's an extraordinary piece of self-justification. The magistrate who examined him for all those hours seems to have been exhausted and disturbed by the encounter filtering out what did not pertain to the criminal allegations against John Philip while recognising that he was dealing with a madman. As he remarked in a separate document which gave his own reactions to the five-hour interview, and I quote, During this time, John Philip gave a most candid and succinct account of all the transactions of the preceding day, rather aggravating, than endeavouring to extenuate his own guilt. In talking, however, of any extraneous matter, which he often did, he revealed strong signs of insanity. Both vivid and chilling, John's testimony shows the psychotic mind of a narcissistic and delusional man. The narrative tone alone is alarming because it's so calm, so cold. But each of the 13 closely written pages of the original document is signed not John Philip, but Edward Brodie. At the end of his interrogation, the bemused magistrate asked him to explain how he could reconcile his now calling himself Edward Brodie, Esquire of Leffen, and addressing Mistress Brodie, in other words, Anne Brodie's mother, as his mamma, with the former idea of making his addresses or marrying Miss Anne Brodie. John replied simply that this designation, Edward Brodie Esquire, is only an idea he has entertained from this morning of being her brother. Edinburgh was a playground for the prosperous landed and professional classes of George III's Scotland. Rich landowners like the Brodies, of what the Scots called Lairds, could afford to spend all or part of their year in the social and cultural centre of the nation. Edinburgh had a social season which could match that of any town in provincial Britain. There was also an active marriage market in Georgian Edinburgh, with acknowledged meeting places and stylized rites of courtship. If marriages were not actually arranged, parents, and also sometimes professional matchmakers, artfully contrived alliances as the moneyed classes sought to keep their wealth within a narrow circle of families. Writing in the 1770s, an English visitor called Edward Topham discussed the ways of meeting and the required modes of behaviour. Structured promenading was part of the ritual, it being customary for them, as Topham put it, to drive their carriages to the sands at Leith and Musselburgh and parade back and forth after the manner of Scarborough. Other recognised meeting places were churches and the plays, dances and concerts known as social assemblies. These were the sorts of locations where John kept watch on Anne Brodie. A direct approach by him was unthinkable by the conventions of a rigidly hierarchical society. In the criminal indictment, John's actions are described as crimes, I quote, "...of a heinous nature and severely punishable, especially when committed by persons of low rank and in prosecution of a disorderly and improper scheme which they have formed and pursued to draw the attention of, affront, trouble or disquiet, a young lady of rank and fortune." John had ideas far above his station in life. The Brodies, on the other hand, had the trappings of celebrity about them. The night before his attack on their house, John had seen Miss Brodie arrive at the playhouse in her carriage without a light on, and leave in her sedan chair. As far as John was concerned, these signs of a desire to avoid the public eye meant not that she was trying to avoid him, but that she was to marry. This notion changed months of determined, if silent, and distant admiration to an overwhelming urge to confront the object of his obsession. And in the next podcast, next week, I'll fill in the next part of the story, which is more about John Phillips' point of view, as represented by him, and also by those close to him. It gives us further insights into the mind of a compulsive and obsessive man. Please join me for that podcast.